What things have you watched lately? Uh, 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 I was talking to you earlier about this movie that I was watching called The Haunting, Mm -hmm. and it was one of the earlier adaptations of what Netflix produced called The Haunting of Hill House. Yeah, I I knew that there was a movie. They've apparently had a couple of movies. Oh. And the only reason I knew about that is because I read an article on Facebook, Mm -hmm. and then I just kind of stumbled upon this when I was on the um, Stars app. And I was like, yeah, you know what? I, I like haunting movies. I'll watch it. I'll see if it's any good. Yeah. I, I'm basic. I'll watch it. And it was okay. The most enjoyable part to me was Owen Wilson. Yeah, and I cannot believe Owen Wilson was in that movie. It, I mean, I'm fairly, it, it, it had to be him. It, I didn't check, but it had to be him. You mean you don't know? You're just telling me Owen Wilson is in movies and I'm just... (laughs) Yes. Hold on. I'm Googling for you. Yes, it's Owen Wilson. (laughs) The Haunting, 1999. Yep, 1999. And my dad actually... I had high hopes for it because my dad told me that it was a creepy movie because he had seen it. Mm -hmm. And I got to the end of it and I'm just sitting here like super disappointed in it. Yeah. I have high standards for scary slash ghost movies. Yeah. And this is definitely a 90s scary movie. Well, yeah. Yeah. 90s scary movies and today's scary movies not the same thing. Like the worst part. Ugh. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna ruin the movie for you because you should watch it. It's a good movie. We'll see. But yeah, but there is one really bad part, and it involves Owen Wilson. And yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's the only bad part that I could think of. The rest of it was just horrible CGI. Because nineties. Um. <laughs> what about you? Anything interesting? Yes, I yes. watched. Um... On Netflix, there's this new, um, god damn it, what is it called? It is called Middle Ditch and Schwartz, a series of improv comedy specials on Netflix. I love improv. They are so fucking funny. Like, I knew Ben Schwartz was funny, but they were fucking funny. I'm going to look it up and see if I can favorite it. Okay. Because, I'm serious, I love improv. Because I, I literally, I laughed so hard. Well, they, like, it's not, like, just, like, tiny skits either. Like, they talk to the crowd and they get a couple of details from them about a certain thing that they're, like, looking forward to or dreading. And then they literally build a whole show on that thing and certain details that they give them. Middle Ditch and Schwartz? Yes. Added. So funny. I, the first one and the third one were my favorite. Awesome. So, okay. favorites. Favorites. Um, yeah, I'm going to watch that because here, I, just, I love improv. Mom started watching Tiger King oh, dear. today. I didn't finish it. <laughs> I, um, I have not started it. I don't want to. I, like I want to start it and I don't want to start it. 
Yeah, like, when you watch it, you're like, that's some crazy shit. But then Mm. you, like, hear all the stuff that people have said about it and how people are standing Joe Exotic. And I'm like, mmm, we don't do that. No. Like, I don't really like Carol Baskin. But it's because she basically... she seemed... Super nice on the show that we were watching the other day. She seems super nice, but she genuinely is doing a lot of the same exact stuff that Joe Exotic and all the other, like, exhibits like them are doing. Are doing. Yeah. And see, the um, the show that I was watching, I don't know what, what they're doing now, but the show that I was watching, they were literally just a sanctuary. They weren't doing any type of, I mean, people weren't coming in and out. They so sell things tickets. must have changed. They sell t- <laughs> the only difference is that you can't really pet the animals. The animals, but she still charges for people to see those animals. Yeah. And I <sighs> Well, by that logic, then what is it any different than a zoo? I'm yeah. I'm saying plus like one tiger needs, like, 30 acres to roam around. She's got, like... She's got all of them on, like, 40 acres. Yeah. Yeah. Not enough. I'm like, I don't... Maybe it's, like, yeah, 300 I... acres that they need. I don't remember what they need. But they need a lot more than she has. And she's got a lot. And... Yeah. I don't think that that should be a thing. Yeah. When I was watching, um, whatever that show, they already had, like, 100 200 of them on only the 40 acres and i'm sitting here like yeah that's so much that's like so that's many. so much like i'm already kind of wary of like zoos because i feel like in some exhibits they don't have enough room mm-hmm. but i know that in a lot of them they're really taken care of whereas yeah. like they don't have enough room they've got like hundreds of animals but they don't have enough room i don't know so many of them I mean, they they treat their animals really well, and their animals now during this time get super excited when they see visitors mm-hmm. again. But some of them, like you said, they just don't have enough room. Yeah. All around, I'm not a big fan of Tiger King. <laughs> I feel like I'm gonna get some shit for that. We can cut this part. <laughs> I mean, we can keep it. I don't care, but. It just makes me really sad. It well, yeah, yeah. And then yeah. when you find out, like, that he—I mean—they're just not good people. Uh, they're not. Okay, well, let's get started. Otherwise, we're going to be recording until 10. Yes, yes. Um, Welcome. That's Rachel. That's Grace. We are... Myths and Misfortunes. A paranormal and true crime podcast. Yeah. Each week, we pick somewhere in the world and base our stories on that place. And or surrounding areas. Mine Mine is 
kind of surrounding, but also it's like within it, you'll you'll understand. Mine is in it, but it's got some out of it. Okay, that works. All right, so. So where are we today, Rachel? All right, so this week we are in Los Angeles, California. L.A., oh my LA, god. L.A., the city of angels, and thanks to my research, I finally know why it's called the city of angels, I'm <laughs> dumb. <laughs> my sources are wikipedia.com, history.com, britannica.com, discoverlosangeles.com, and localhistories.org. I told you, there was a lot for history, and the fact that I condensed it down to... A page and a half. I'm extremely surprised at, but also I was just done with the history once I got past, like, two paragraphs. <laughs> That's how I was when it got to be five o'clock. I was like, I cannot keep going, because if I keep going, I will have 20 pages. Well, but also with, with the history, a lot of it was just super depressing. Depression. Depression. Depressing. Depression. Depressing. And it's, like like a lot of the U.S., it's a lot of you know, racial inequalities, mm-hmm. and especially once we get to the natives, it, it yeah. is so much worse. Um, until the arrival of the Spanish in the 18th century, the land which is now Los Angeles was occupied, 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 <laughs> was occupied by the Hokan speaking people of the Milling Stone period. Uh, roughly 250,000 to 300,000 of these natives lived within California and 5,000 in the Los Angeles Basin alone. Hmm. Los Angeles was originally founded in 1781. It was called, I wrote this out, I'm hoping I'm going to say it right. El Pueblo de Nuestra de Señora, Señoria La Rihanna de los Angeles del Rio de Porquincola. <laughs> mm-hmm. So sorry. I spelled it out phonically the way that I wanted to say it. I still think I said it wrong. And I'm going to agree that, with you. You know, yeah. I'm just going to go ahead and do that. Uh, yes, um, and that translates to Our Lady, the Queen of the Angels of Porquincola. Quinquela. By 1800, it had a population of 315 mm. of the Spanish speakers. Speakers. Speakers of the Spanish speakers. Uh, the town obviously grew as soldiers and other settlers came and stayed. By 1821, the town had grown to be a self-sustaining farming community. And that year, Alta California... I'm sorry. It's okay. I don't remember, um, I don't know if you remember or not, but the last episode we did in California, I talked about Alta, California, and the other one that I can't remember. We were in California before? Mm-hmm. Oh, San Jose, when we did uh, Winchester. That was so long ago. That, yeah, it was. Yeah, it was. Okay. Anyway, um, that same year, 1821, Alta, California celebrated Mexico's independence from Spain. Hmm. So, this independence brought a lot of growth economically. That, in turn, affected the population. By 1821, the population tripled to 1,680 as natives assimilated into the populace and settlers arrived from America, Europe, and other parts of Mexico. 
I tried to focus on the positives. There was a lot of negative. <laughs> death, death, and, murder. Yes. Racism. Yes. Killing. Pretty much, yes. In 1846, the Mexican-American War started, and on August 13th that year, the town was seized by Commodore Robert F. Stockton and John C. Fremont for the Americans as the governor of the city fled to Mexico. He held up really well. Yeah, yeah. Roughly 300 locals drove the Americans out. However, multiple skirmishes continued to happen. And on February 2nd, 1848, the war ended and California was ceded to the U.S. So no longer part of Mexico. After this is when California became Americanized. Mm -hmm. The U.S. military came in and renamed everything. According to colonial laws, the property held by the current residents transferred to the government rather than titling to the owners within an American court. Which sucks. Yeah. So these people were literally pushed off their land. That's America. That's America. During the gold rush, L.A. became known as the Queen of the Cow Counties. 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 Because it held a major role in supplying beef and other food to the miners in Northern California. Oh. With the temporary absence of a legal system, the town quickly came to be known as the toughest and most lawless city west of Santa Fe. In fact, many of the residents to law. Sorry, it's just so weird to think of L.A. as like the toughest city. It was the toughest city west of Santa Fe. Yes. Right? Yes. Uh, In fact, many of the residents hated the new Anglo residents who took up power roles in the city, and they began resorting to, as one source said, banditry. Oh. So, yeah, the prior residents started stealing. Um, This, however, furthered the fear and... This furthered the fear of racially motivated violence and further mar- marginalized the the Mexicans. The the yeah. The prior natives that weren't the natives. Yes. <laughs> yes. All of this also affected the Native Americans at the time. Mm-hmm. The village of Yanga was relocated twice. Those natives who were self-employed were not allowed to sleep within the city. Oh. And yep. And there was a competition between them and the Mexican-Americans for jobs. Those natives who were found drunk or unemployed were arrested and auctioned off as laborers to those who paid their jail fines. That's fucked. And they were often paid in alcohol rather than legit money, which obviously did not help. Especially if they got arrested for being drunk. (laughs) The Constitution of California did not provide any protection to the natives and even considered them to be non-persons, which is just so beyond gross. And we've talked, I mean, we've talked about it before because it's still prevalent today. Um, It's damn near impossible to bring a non-native to trial for the murder of a native. Yeah. With the help of an activist named Helen Hunt Jackson and her book Ramona in 1884, she brought to light a lot of the atrocities that were were inflicted on the natives at the time. 
In fact, many of the Native American villages of Southern California were uh, survived because of her efforts and her oh, activism. Oh, wow. Like, thank you, Helen. For real. By 1900, there were over 100,000 people living in and around L.A. During this time is when the movie producers from the East Coast relocated there. And just before World War I, the garment industry began to sprout up and flourish. Hmm. Who would have thunk? During World War II, L.A. was a major center for the production of aircraft, ships, war supplies, and ammunition. Due to the jobs readily available during this time for the production of all this wartime supply, there was a major population boom in the metropolitan area. Yeah, yeah. In 1943, the population was larger than 37 states and was home to one out of every 40 U.S. citizens. Dang. Yep. So, as I mentioned a little bit earlier... Along with the rest of the U.S., there were racially motivated problems where minorities were treated like second- and third-class citizens. Between 1900 and 1920, there was a boom in housing developments. However, they all included racially restricted covenants. And in 1965, the Burroughs versus Jackson case ruled that the, these covenants were unconstitutional under the ah. 14th Amendment. Thank you, Burroughs versus Jackson. I feel like a lot of the time I make these faces and then I realize that um, people can't (laughs) see my face and then you've already (laughs) moved on from that point. So I can't be like, fuck that or or like (laughs) something like that. I know. I find myself whenever you're saying your story, I find myself doing like last two sentences because after these two sentences, nothing really changed. Okay. In the 1990s, the last of the automobile factories were shut down, and most of the agricultural aspects of L.A. had moved to the outlying counties. Mm. This left the film, music, and television industry to prosper. That is history. Wow. Because everyone knows L.A. as the film and music capital (laughs) of the world. I'm surprised you were able to narrow that down at all. Yes. That's why I said I tried to stick to the the happy stuff because all the I left a few of a little bit of it in, but I got really angry reading the history of yeah, LA. Yeah, I do that a lot, so yeah, I feel that. Yeah, which is why I brought up the part about the activists. Like, okay, I'm gonna mention this, but also something happy happened. Yeah, okay. didn't fix it all, but all right. So let me do a murder. Murder. Yes. Okay, so I'm doing Robert Durst. Mm-hmm. I have no idea who Robert Durst is. I didn't either. Like, I had no idea. Is, is he a big one? No. No? No. Okay. Um, so my sources are NewYorkMag.com people.com, wikipedia, newyorkpost.com, lamag.com, and laist.com. Okay. So, we're going to start with Susan Jane Berman. Okay. Alright, so Susan was born May 18th, 1945, to a traveling dancer 
who had adopted the stage name Gladys Evans, and Davy Berman, a mobster who replaced Bugsy... Ooh. <laughs> I don't know how to say that. Hold on. Bugsy Moran? No. Oh, different Bugsy. So, Seagull. Okay. Seagull? Yeah. Like, wah, wah, wah. No. Seagull? No? That's Seagull. This is Seagull. A. Colloquialisms. No. Um, <laughs> Davy Berman, dog. a mobster who replaced Bugsy Siegel at Las Vegas' Flamingo Hotel after Siegel's murder. Oh, no. Yeah. Fortunately, uh, her father suffered a heart attack and died when Susan was 12. And when she was 13, her mother, who had been institutionalized for depression for a lot of her life, died by suicide. Oof. Yeah. Um, Susan grew up not really realizing her family's lifestyle wasn't normal. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until she was 32 and working as a journalist that people asked her if she was related to a mobster that she figured out who her father really was. Oh. Yeah. So. Okay. In 1977, she became obsessed with finding out everything about her father. Uh, she went to his hometown in North Dakota. She went to Las Vegas and even used the Freedom of Information Act to get files from the FBI about her father. Which, okay. yeah. Um, yeah. That's when she learned about the numerous crimes he had committed. Bank robberies, kidnappings, killings, and she learned that he had spent seven years at Sing Sing before she was born. Cool you know, dude. it's only normal that a father would want to keep his past from the child. So, especially if it's yeah, not good. Yeah. But on top of that, like she had like bodyguards and stuff, like they were the ones Maybe who she took just... care of her and she never thought it was weird. She thought they were like just family and friends. It wasn't until What she... if she just thought they were rich? I mean, they did that too. But yeah, <laughs> but yeah, like they, none of them had keys. The only people who had keys to their home was their bodyguards. Mm-hmm. And she didn't think that was <laughs> weird. I don't know. I mean, so she kept with her research about her father and eventually she wrote a memoir titled Easy Street, published in 1981 about their mob family, uh, her obliviousness to what went on around them and her mother's death, which... She suspected wasn't actually a suicide. Oh. Yeah, she believed that her mother's death was a mob hit over the money that her father left her when he died. I can believe it. Um, the book did pretty well, and she even sold the rights to uh, for a movie to Universal Studios for $350,000, which I don't know what that is in today's money. I'm assuming it's a lot. A good amount of money. Yeah, um, but the movie was never made. Yeah. She moved to L.A. to be- Look for it in 2021. <laughs> Nothing's being made this year, so I don't think that's going to happen. Look for it in 2025. Maybe. We're going to be stuck here we'll for see. a year and a half. Probably, um, yeah. So she moved to L.A. after this to become a screenwriter, and she met... Mm, I feel like I should have looked that up, too. She met a guy with a name. She met a guy whose first name was Mr... His first name was Mister. That is hilarious. Mister. 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 Margulies? That doesn't sound right. Margulies? Nope, that doesn't sound right either. I guess that's it. Okay. 
she moved to L.A. to become a screenwriter and met Mr. Margulies. As you do. His first name is literally Mr. Mr. Which is kind of... Mr. That's like when, uh, like in Fairly Odd Parents, when that kid's name is Dad. Well, it's also His like dad, when yeah, you're but... when you're a kid and like your teacher, your teacher to you is literally Mr. or yeah. Mrs. something. It's not... So you just think every adult's name. name is Miss or Mr. Mr. or Mr. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, according to her friends, um, oh, he was 25 at the time and she was 38. So not quite a Mr. What? Definitely not a Mr. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She was 38 and he was 25. But according to her friends, they hit it off right away and they were crazy about each other. And they married in 1984 and with no parents, her friend Bobby Durst a.k.a. Robert Durst, uh, Mm -hmm. who she met in college at UCLA, gave her away. However, their marriage didn't last past six or seven months because Mr. began doing drugs and abusing Susan. Susan knew when she married him that Mr. had done heroin in the past, but she believed that it was all over, um, Mm -hmm. which sucks for her. Uh, About a year and a half later, Mr., what did I say? Margulies? Mark? Mark? I don't remember. Fuck. Mr. M. Just call him Mr. M. Margulies. Anyway. Anywho. About a year and a half later, Mr. Margulies overdosed at 27. Yeah. Mm-mm-mm. Nope. Although they Bad. were divorced, they were reconciling, and his death led her to a nervous breakdown. Um, Susan yeah. actually threatened to jump off a roof leading to one of her friends calling Susan psychic. Yeah. She she has a psychic. Barbara Stabiner, who read her tarot... You were going to say Barbara Stabiner. No. (laughs) Uh, She read her her tarot cards and told Susan that she saw great things for her in the future. And I guess that worked, because she didn't die then. I don't know. In 1987, she met and began dating Paul Kaufman, a financial advisor with two young children. They all moved into Susan's home. His children, okay. Mela and Sereb. Cer- oh, Mela, that's a cute yeah. name. Uh, they both considered Susan to be their mother, even after the relationship fell apart in 1992. When Susan went broke and the bank took her house and she had to declare bankruptcy. Oh, no. Yeah. Uh, after the, the relationship failed, Susan had another breakdown. In 1992, a friend gave Susan the use of a condo on Sunset Boulevard while Sereb, Sereb, don't know, stayed with his father. Susan and Mella lived there for five years. Oh, okay. And Susan started writing mysteries to pay her expenses and for Mella's private school tuition. Susan always wanted children of her own, but, um, and at one point she actually talked with her friends about asking her friend Bobby Durst to father a child with her. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he often gave her, like, loans to keep up with her lifestyle because obviously she didn't have money. Um. Obviously. Her friends thought that Susan had a thing for Durst and that she probably figured that they would eventually end up together when he was, like, finished being a ladies' man or whatever. Oh, sure, because that... Definitely always happens. Yeah. Um, in 1996, Susan landed a book deal 
and a and an A and E special called Lady Las Vegas. And she was okay. she was, you know, able to get back on her feet. Um she had also recently received a gift from Durst. It was fifty thousand dollars. I would like a gift like that. Yeah, like normally it was like loans and stuff, but this time yeah. it was he said a it's gift. a gift. Um go her. She also acquired a manager, Niall Brenner, who friends say she was almost embarrassingly into. Yeah. Um, Have you ever been that into someone? You embarrassed yourself in front of your friends. He's like, (laughs) they're like, she liked him like a little too much, if you know what I mean. Uh, And apparently he did everything for her, like drove her around, took her to doctor's appointments, got her laundry, um, moved her furniture around for her, anything and everything. Maybe he was a little into her too? Yes and no. Okay. Um, I'll get into it later, I think, if I put it in here. If I didn't, I'll try to remember. So, Susan's friends loved her, despite her penchant for being dramatic and very neurotic. (laughs) She's like, why are you talking about me? Uh, Why are you talking about me? Uh, But she had quite a few phobias, ranging from a fear of dying, which I feel like is fairly normal for a lot of people. Um, But they also went, like, crossing, like, certain bridges or streets. Mm-hmm. And she couldn't eat in a restaurant without, like, interrogating the waiters or even the chef because, yeah, because she was afraid that she would die from one of her many allergies. And she couldn't go above the third floor in a building unless accompanied by a big, strong man and assured that the windows were hermetically sealed because her biggest phobia was that she would hurl herself out a window. Um... That she would hurl herself out a window. Yes. Um, but, yeah. Friends say that Susan would call Brenner constantly to help her deal with her phobias. On November... No, that's December. It, it says <laughs> oh, December. Know, I, don't know why I, said, I don't know why I said December. <laughs> uh, November. Fuck. <laughs> it's okay. On December 22nd, 2000, Susan went to dinner and a movie with Mitch M- Rich Markey, a comedy <laughs> producer in L.A. I'm sorry. Mitch Markey. I know. <laughs> the way you were going to say it. Rich Markey, a comedy producer in L.A. Over dinner, they talked about her book deal, her TV deal, um, Sarah Ben Mella. Susan was excited about a sequel, and she was... Uh, fuck. She was excited about a sequel that she was planning to her book Easy Street called Rich Girl Broke. Mm-hmm. And Marky was on his way to Vegas for a family reunion. And so she was excited that he was going to see where she grew up. Yeah. On the way home, she kind of lost it in the parking garage because someone in the elevator pressed the button for the fifth floor. Because, you know, she uh, can't go over the third floor. Oh, okay. Yeah. I was like, why did she lose it? Yeah. On Christmas Eve, neighbors called the police after they saw one of her three dogs running around and barking outside. Um, oh, no. Yeah. They said it was unusual since she always kept a watchful eye over her dogs. They were like, she was like, my precious. Like, my dogs. So, once the police entered the home on Benedict Canyon Road, they followed bloody paw prints from the dogs to the back bedroom 
and found Susan. <gasps> Did they eat her? No. They found okay. Susan lying on the hardwood floor, shot execution style. Did they eat her? Really? <laughs> you said bloody paw prints. I mean, do you think that okay. I would be talking about somebody who got eaten by a fuck by their fucking dogs? That's terrifying. What? I mean, not that this isn't terrifying, but I'm sorry, but did they eat her? Anyway, um, yeah, she was there, shot execution style, back of the head. They determined that she had been lying there for about a day. Um, oh. Although a bullet casing was found, the gun was never recovered. There weren't any signs of forced entry, which suggested that Susan knew the killer. Also, she was extremely afraid of a lot of things, so I don't think she would have let a stranger in. Um, there were some theories that Susan's death was a mob hit, since she wrote about mobsters a lot. Uh, but her close friends said that she would never rat out anyone because she lived by a mob-like code of loyalty. And also mm. when she wrote about mobsters, it was, like, in a loving way. Like, she thought the whole thing was very, like... Like, she kind of romanticized it because she loved her father so much. Yeah. Um, dude. She, you know, she believed in psychic readings and stuff. And weirdly, she told a friend that she got a reading a couple days before she died. Um, she told her friend that she got a reading and that the psychic said that she would die a violent death involving a gun. Oh, well, that psychic was a little accurate. Yeah. I don't think readings get that accurate. Not typically, no. Mm -mm. But, uh, you know, I don't know. After Berman died, Berman, I wrote, I kept, I went back and forth from her first name to her last name when I was writing. So I have to keep on changing it in my head. Um, yeah. after Susan died, Beverly Hills police received a letter about a cadaver at Susan's home and it was dated mm -hmm. December 23. Um, the date police believe burnt Susan was killed in the letter. Beverly, like Beverly Hills is misspelled with an E after the L cause you know, Beverly Hills, okay. it's not spelled like that. Yeah. Um, and the text is written in all block letters. Which is not her usual handwriting, I assume. Well, she can't write that there's a cadaver at her house and send it to the police. <laughs> She's dead. <laughs> she sent it before the fact. She that sent a letter that she was dead to the police. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> um, okay. <sighs> a lot of Susan's friends were interviewed, but none of them seemed to really have a motive. It was actually thought that her landlady um, uh, and her manager might have been a part of it, like, one of them, because she was having such an issue with her landlady. Like, she wasn't able to pay as much until she got that money from uh, Durst. So yeah. she was kind of rocky there, but it kind of fixed everything after she got that money. But her manager made... Who she was super in love with. Made all of these comments after she died about how... Um, it was very taxing to be around her and how he was kind of glad he wouldn't have to deal with her anymore. I mean, when she's chasing after him like a sick little puppy. No, like all of her phobias and stuff. That was the stuff that was getting him. Well, also that, yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, they were the only two that were really looked at until 
it was discovered that Susan had been on a short list of witnesses to interview in a case from 19 years prior. The oh. Yes. Yes. The disappearance of Kathleen Durst, the estranged oh, wife of real her. estate heir Robert Bobby Durst. Oh, so her best friend's wife. I know. So... <gasps> Hollywood drama at night. <laughs> Let's take a look at Robert Bobby Allen Durst. That's why he gave her $50,000, to keep quiet about him killing his wife. Well, um, so we'll just talk about it. You'll see. Okay. So, oldest of four children, Robert Durst was born April 12, 1943, and grew up in Scarsdale, New York, in a Jewish family. He's the son of real estate investor Seymour Durst and his wife, Bernice Hurstein. When Robert was seven, his mother died as a result as a, of a fall from the family's home. Mm-hmm. He later claimed that he witnessed her death. Ooh, what? Yeah. His brother Douglas, however, denied that Robert witnessed it. It was very uh. weird. Okay. He said that... Wait, how how would his brother... Yeah. Okay, I don't know why. My brain changed it to cousin. Why would his brother know that he didn't see it? Or if he did see it, why would his brother know? Because they live together? So? I feel like if you saw it, you'd be like, holy shit, that was fucked up. And other people would be like, yeah, man, that's fucked up. Unless he's the one that did it. No. When he was seven? It's like, there's seven-year-olds that do it. Anyway, he said he his father led him over to a window, and then his mother jumped off the roof. So I don't think that happened. Anyway. Okay. As children, I thinking, Robert and Douglas underwent counseling for sibling rivalry. And in 1953, a psychiatrist report on Robert as a 10-year-old mentioned um, personality decomposition and possibly even schizophrenia. Oh, that doesn't sound good. So he did not end up having schizophrenia, by the way. I'm just going to say that now. Um, Durst... I meant the personality decomposition, but okay. I mean, Durst attended Scarsdale High School, where classmates described him as a loner. Oh, our favorite word. Yes. Our favorite personality trait. Yep. He earned a bachelor's degree in economics in 1965 from Lee University. He enrolled in a, doctor, a doctoral program at UCLA later that year, where he met and grew close to Susan Berman. Mm-hmm. But eventually he withdrew from the school and returned to New York in 1969. So, Durst went on to become a real estate developer in his father's business. However, in 1992, his younger brother, Douglas was appointed to run the company. Oh, yes. sibling rivalry. Uh-huh. This obviously caused a rift between Robert and his family, and he just never came back to work. So Sure. I don't know what he was doing okay. all of this time. But. So let's go back a bit. Uh, in the fall of 1971, Robert Durst met Kathleen McCormick, a dental hygienist. After two dates, Durst invited McCormick to share his home in Vermont where he had opened a health food store. And she moved there in January of 1972. You know, sometimes if you know, you know. So I'm not going to judge there. I just think it's interesting. Two dates. That's 
two days for, yeah, for you that's... to move from one state for, to yeah. another yeah um again sometimes you know if you know i guess however uh durst's father pressured him to move back to new york in, to work in the family business um this was before all of the stuff went on yeah the couple returned to manhattan where they married on april 12th 1973 uh durst's 30th birthday which is weird who wants to get married on their birthday hey you'll never forget it true but it's like why i wanted to get married on halloween for the longest time yeah but you don't get presents on halloween so you'd be getting presents on halloween you get candy for halloween though yeah but that's not presents for me that's presents whatever (laughs) anyway shortly before her disappearance kathleen was only a few months short of earning her degree from albert einstein college of medicine in the bronx Mm-hmm. She had intended to become a pediatrician. Aww. Yeah, she was last seen January 31st, 1982, when she appeared unexpectedly at a dinner party thrown by a friend named Gilbert Najami. Gilbert Najami. Thank you, Gilbert Najami. But she yeah. was supposed to meet him for drinks later that night, but never showed. So he called the police multiple times over the next couple of days. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm glad you followed that. I thought you were going to say next couple of hours. I was like, uh... She needs to be here. No, um... <laughs> yeah, over the next couple of days, he called the police a couple of times because he's like, this is not like her. It's very weird. Um, she was yeah. also wearing, um, like, red sweatpants, which she thought he thought was very weird because very weird. she always dressed, like immaculately and this is like a dinner party so it was it was pretty weird so she was she was comfortable yeah um i lost my place okay days later durst filed a missing persons report as well five days okay. later to be exact too long but sure it's pretty long right that uh, yeah Durst says... Usually they say, like, two days. Well, okay, so Durst says that the couple argued and fought that night, but that he put his wife on a train to Manhattan uh, to go to that... to go meet her friend and had a drink with a neighbor, and uh, he spoke to his wife on the telephone later that evening. The thing is, they were separated at this point, and Durst Mm -hmm. had been seeing um, another woman for, like, three years and was living in a separate apartment. That's horrible. Um, so he says the last time that he saw her was when she got on that train to go to Manhattan. Mm-mm. Okay. So Kathleen had been treated at a Bronx hospital um, three weeks before her disappearance for facial bruises. Oh. Yeah, and she told a friend that uh, Robert had abused her, but she didn't press charges. Instead, she asked him for $250,000 divorce settlement. In return, Durst canceled his wife's credit card, removed her name from a joint bank account, and refused to pay her medical school tuition. Now that's a healthy relationship. Oh, it's so healthy. Doesn't it just... Ugh. Mm-hmm. Um, when she went missing, Durst initially offered $100,000 for his wife's return, and then he reduced the award, the reward to 15000 Why reduce it? Because he, he wanted it. that money. Okay. Only three weeks after Durst reported her missing, uh, the superintendent at the Manhattan apartment... What? Mm? 
Yeah, the superintendent right. at the Manhattan apartment that they had shared found her possessions in the building's trash compactor. Uh, and, um... Yeah. When one of Kathleen's friends and her sister found out that she'd been reported missing, they broke into the cottage that she lived in, hoping to find her. Instead, they found the cottage ransacked, the mail left unopened, and her belongings in the trash. They were scared, so they left. Understandably. Yeah. Durst claimed that on February 4th of that year, the supervisor at her medical school called him and said that she had called in sick on February 1st and was absent from the class for the entire week. Which would mean that she made that call the day after she went missing. Yeah. It's not really sure, like, if Kathleen was the one who made the call or if it was somebody else. Um, who made the call for her saying, hey, she's not feeling well. Yeah. But the day after he got the call from the um, dean, he reported her missing. Basically, the police found his stories to be full of contradictions. Um, well, gee, I wonder yeah. why. So, fast forward a bit. Full story. Uh, eight years after Kathleen's disappearance, Durst divorced her, claiming spousal abandonment. Okay, but spousal abandonment and you think that... I mean, she's probably dead. Yeah, but he he's... He... He's an asshole. So, yeah, he claims spousal abandonment. Um, the New York State Police quietly reopened the criminal investigation. Yeah? Sure, bud. What's up? So what you doing? I'm recording a podcast. Which, what, what are you doing? Can I watch you for days? <laughs> what? For I, days? I could watch you record for days. That's so creepy. Why are you saying that? Alright, I'm leaving. I'm leaving. <laughs> what the fuck? Am I gonna die? Alright, alright. I'm leaving. I'm leaving. God. I'm in danger. <laughs> can I keep that? Yeah. <laughs> we can keep that. I don't know what that was about. Uh, for reference, that was my... 15 year old autistic brother telling me I could watch you for days. <laughs> he's got this thing going where he likes to pretend that he's creepy and then sometimes it turns creepy <laughs> because he's trying to act like he's creepy. Um, he's precious, but now I'm wondering the real reason he came to your room. <laughs> I feel like my dad probably put him up to it. <laughs> Thanks, Dad. Yeah. Because I know you're probably listening. <laughs> okay. Um, the New York New York State Police <laughs> quietly reopened the criminal investigation into the disappearance in 1999, uh, searching Durst's former South Salem residence for the first time. Mm -hmm. So that South Salem residence is that cabin that uh, her sister and her friend went to. They oh, had it was ransacked. Yeah. They had searched the apartment in Manhattan. But not the one that she was actually living in? I, it's unclear which one she was actually living in. It looks like they had so many different places where they just lived, like, randomly. I don't... What? I wish I could afford to live two places. I'm saying. <laughs> in the same... Basically, same city. Uh, or same state. I don't... Yeah. Uh, it's just her summer cottage. Fuck. I don't know. Anyway. Um... That was the first time they went there. The investigation nice. became public in November 2000. In 2006, 
the McCormick family asked to have Kathleen declared dead. Mm-hmm. Kathleen's mother, Anne McCormick, attempted to sue Durst for $100 million, alleging that he killed McCormick. Or, I keep saying McCormick. Uh, Kathleen. Kathleen. Catherine. Kathleen. Alleging that he killed Kathleen and deprived them of the right to bury her. Mm-hmm. Uh, nothing really came of it, though, because um, po- both of her parents are now deceased. Um, her younger sister, Mary McCormick Hughes, also believes that Durst murdered her. And in August of 19... 19. <sighs> Fuck. <laughs> in August of 2019, a wrongful death lawsuit filed by McCormick's other sister, Carol Bamonte, against Durst, which accused him of murdering his wife was dismissed on the grounds that she had waited too long to file the suit. Holy crap, this is super current. Yeah. Okay. Now we're going back. Connect the story. So, you remember how (laughs) Susan Berman had been on the short list of witnesses to interview for Kathleen's disappearance? Yes. Well, one of her friends told New York Magazine that many years ago, Susan revealed to them that she provided Durst's alibi for that night. Yeah. Her uh, husband Durst? Not husband Durst, but... Uh, Robert. Brian. Robert. Why did I want to say Brian Durst? I don't know. Um, So, yeah. Susan provided Bobby with an alibi. Although, she told her friend that this didn't mean that she thought he was guilty. So, she gave a fake alibi. Yeah, no, she provided him with alibi. They were not together. Oh. But she, they were such close friends that she was like, he didn't do it. So, I'm going to go ahead and give him this alibi so they leave him alone. But she suddenly believed that he could have done it. No. Okay. I'm confused. So, she told her friend that, Because she gave an alibi, that doesn't mean that she thinks he's guilty. Okay. So, she was just helping him out, so she does not think that he's guilty. Okay, okay, okay. Makes sense now. Um, after all of that, people started to think that all those times that he gave her money was actually him buying her silence. (gasps) Bribing her! Yeah. Um, so... Durst was actually known to have been in Northern California a couple of days before Susan was killed. Mm-hmm. He also flew from San Francisco to New York the night before Susan's body was discovered. Okay. Berman had recently uh, received five, uh, that, that 50000 from Durst uh, in two payments. Yeah. And although Durst confirmed to the LAPD that he had sent her 25000 and he faxed the investigators a copy... A copy. A copy of her 1982 deposition regarding his missing wife, he declined to be further questioned about Susan's murder, and they couldn't prove that he was in L.A. during that time, uh, just in Northern California. All right, then. So. So. So it's not like today where they've got, like, all those traffic cams and they've got, like, credit card statements, all that shit. Well, yeah, this this was a while ago. So, um. Yeah. So this is where shit really gets fucking crazy. I I can't believe it can get any crazier than this, but You have no idea. You continue. Okay. So <laughs> around the time of Susan's death, Durst had married very quickly married Deborah Lee Charton. 
a New York real estate broker um, who he had a romantic affair with years before. Yeah. This is the wildest part. Okay. So he marries this woman, right? He gave her, he, yes. he gave her authority to handle his financial accounts. And then he skips okay. town to hide out in Galveston, Texas, where he rented a $300 a month room while posing as a mute woman named Dorothy. <laughs> Dorothy? He acted like he was a mute well, woman named Dorothy Signer. So Okay, but yes why did why did he skip town he skipped town because she told oh did i not put that in there okay so he skipped town because she told him well so he finds out that that case is reopened in his for his missing wife yeah and then susan tells him that she's been contacted by authorities oh that they want to talk to her so he's like, okay. bye. Um, in Galveston, Texas, he befriended a neighbor named Morris Black. As the two beca- While he was being mute Dorothy. Huh? While he's While he being, being mute, mute Dorothy. Dorothy. But as the two okay. become close, Durst dropped his disguise and revealed his true identity. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Um, and yeah, they became like friends and stuff. Very weird. Okay. Uh, their relationship okay. took a turn, however, after Black began to pressure him to buy a house for them to share. That's creepy. I think he just wanted his money. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. but that's also creepy. Well, duh. He's a guy pretending to be a <laughs> mute lady, and this guy's like, you know what? That's okay. That's okay. All right. Just buy me a house. Be cool. Be cool. So, Durst claimed that in September of 2001, Black had grabbed Durst's handgun from the oven in his apartment, because that's where he kept it. Yeah, he had it in his oven. Uh, I don't why? know. I guess that's okay. where he hides it. I don't know. That's the logical place, you know. But he had his gun, and he threatened him. So, they fought, sure. and as they fell to the ground, the gun went off and shot Black in the face. Likely story. Yeah. Um... Durst proceeded to dismember his corpse, pack the remains into plastic bags, and dump them into Galveston Bay. Yeah. Most of Black's body was found, except for his head. On October... (laughs) Your face right now. (laughs) On October 9th, 2001, uh, Robert Durst was arrested in Galveston. But he was released on $300,000 bail the next day. Jesus, no, why? Yeah, he, and then, then Robert Durst missed a court hearing on October 16th, and a warrant was issued for his arrest for bail jumping. So what I'm hearing is that he killed all of these people. He killed his wife, he killed his best friend, he killed this rando. On November 30th, he was caught inside a Wegmans supermarket in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, after trying to shoplift Band-Aids, a newspaper, and a chicken salad sandwich with roasted red peppers on a pumpernickel baguette. You know, at least he was caught stealing essentials and not, like... He had $500 cash in his pocket. Oh. Well, he's just being dumb, then. Yeah. The police... He could have just paid it and... It, he, he literally had no it. reason to steal whatsoever, unless he thought that, like... He was on the run, and they knew all the money that he had, and had the serial numbers. It makes no sense. But 
police searched his rental car and they found $37,000 in cash, two guns, marijuana, uh, Black's driver driver's license, and directions to Gilbert Najam... Naj- mm, fuck, I can't say his name. Najami's home in Connecticut. That friend that his wife went to see the night she disappeared. Yeah. His yeah. house in Connecticut. Durst also used this time on the run to stalk his brother, Douglas, visiting the driveway of his home in Katona, New York, while armed. Yeah. Uh, he- so Gilbert and his brother were next on the hit list. Yeah, probably. Uh, he was eventually extradited to Texas for trial. Good. In 2003, Durst was tried for the murder of Black... Of course, you know, Black's head was never recovered, so prosecutors were unable to present sufficient forensic evidence to dispute Durst's account. What about fingerprints? Well, I mean, water. I mean, it's kind of hard. Okay, valid point. I forgot he dumped him in the water. But, no, there still would be fingerprints, but they can't, um, because they don't have his head, they can't dispute what he said happened. So he very well could have been shot in the face. But... If they had his but, head, I bet you they would find out that he shot him in the back of the head. I bet you. Okay, but also, if it was self-defense, why did you dismember the body? Because he was afraid. So d- it, d- Just keep listening. Don't like this guy. As a result of the lack of forensics, the jury acquitted Durst on, of murder on November no. 11, 2003. <laughs> no! <laughs> Oh, it's so not funny. Um, it's really not. On the 21st of December, 2004, Durst pled guilty to two counts of jail jump, bail, bail jumping, not jail jumping, <laughs> and one count of evidence tampering for his dismemberment of Black's body. As a part of a plea bargain, he received a sentence of five years and was given credit for time served, requiring him to serve three years in prison. Durst was paroled on the 15th of July, 2005. The rules of his release required him to stay near his home. So, like, he had to have permission to travel anywhere. Mm-hmm. This guy's not really smart. Um, that December, he made an unauthorized trip to the boarding house where Black had been killed and to a nearby shopping mall. While he was at the mall... What was he getting? I don't know, but while he was at the mall... He ran into former Galveston trial judge, Susan Chris, who had presided over his trial. So, obviously, she knew he wasn't supposed to be there. So, he went back to jail. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. He was released again from custody on March 1st, 2006. I, just, uh, this guy, though, just... In early 2015, a six-part HBO documentary titled The Jinx, The Life and Deaths of Robert Durst, described circumstantial evidence linking Durst to the murder of Susan Berman, who was believed to have knowledge of Kathleen Durst's disappearance. This documentary detailed the disappearance of Kathleen, Susan Berman's death, and the killing of Black. Against uh, the evidence of... uh, Evidence, Jesus. Against the advice of his lawyers and his wife, Deborah Leachart. That's right, she stayed with him. They eventually divorced, but she stayed with him for a long time. Um, okay, but it, they they eventually divorced, so... But she stayed with him throughout his trial of, like... 
It just means he didn't confess to her until the very no, end. No, he literally went to jail. He literally, like, dismembered this guy. She, she didn't stayed have with to, him. She didn't have to deal with him while he was in Fair. jail. I mean. Um, <laughs> anyway, against their advice, Durst gave multiple interviews and unrestricted access to his personal records to the filmmakers. It was a mistake. Oh, was there evidence? It was a mistake. Uh, was there was, evidence? So, you know how I said um, Durst, uh, how Susan told him that the police had contacted her about his wife's disappearance? Yeah. The police never contacted her. <gasps> really? She made it up. Probably really? in the hopes that she could get more money. Uh, and then she died because of it. Yep, she did. So, um, in the jinx, Berman's stepson, Sarah Kaufman, finds a letter that Durst wrote in 1999 with similar handwriting as the note police received the day before they found Susan's body. It was him. It was him. Even more unnerving is that Beverly, you know, Beverly Hills, is misspelled in the same way. As that note. It was him. Uh, it was Sarah him. Kaufman is extremely freaked out by that. Um, because. Yeah, obviously. He and Durst stay close over the years after Susan died. He even helped him pay for college. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. The FBI arrested Durst in New Orleans, where he had checked into a hotel under the alias Everett Ward just hours before the final episode of The Jinx was broadcast. Okay. Um, the documentary ended with him going to the bathroom without taking off his microphone. Like, he thought it was off. And the microphone recorded him saying to himself, There it is. You're caught. And then he says some other stuff. And then you hear, what the hell did I do? I killed them all, of course. That was on television. On. I was on television. So, the trial. This is long, I know. We're almost done. No, it's okay. I'm just like, uh, we did it. We that's did what it. I was telling you. There's so much to this. There was stuff I didn't even add. Um... So, in addition to a thirty-eight revolver loaded with four live rounds and one spent shell casing, police recovered five ounces of marijuana, Durst's birth certificate and passport, maps of Louisiana, Florida, and Cuba, a flesh-toned latex mask, the fake Texas ID he used to check into the motel, a new cell phone, and cash totaling in $42,630. Police also mm-hmm. discovered a UPS tracking number, which led to an additional $117,000 cash and a pair of shoes in a package sent to Durst by a friend in New York. Yeah. Friend in New York, huh? Yeah. What, uh, what, what happened out there? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Bank statements. You, you had enough. You weren't going Yeah, I was that. not going to go searching. Bank statements found in one of Durst's Houston condominiums revealed cash withdrawals of $315,000. Okay. After a long, drawn-out bunch of bullshit in court, Durst pled guilty to the federal gun charge and received an 85-month prison sentence, and the trial for um, Susan's murder 
was scheduled to begin in Los Angeles after Durst was arraigned in California, but his transfer was delayed by the U.S. Bureau of Prisons because of a serious surgery. What was the surgery? I don't know. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. A conditional hearing was convened in February of 2017 where Nick Chauvin, Durst's close friend, and he was even the best best man at Chauvin's wedding, testified that Durst had confessed to him having murdered Berman. Like, he ended up going to the police because he was, like, torn between, like, his loyalties because yeah. he was friends with um, Susan, but he was also friends with uh, Durst. Durst. So he was like, that's kind of fucked. But in the end, he went to the police. So well, good. Um, a preliminary hearing was initially scheduled for October 17th, but was postponed to 2018 to accommodate Durst's defense team. Um, because a lot of them suffered damage to their homes and, and um, offices from Hurricane Harvey. Yeah. In October of 2018, Los Angeles County Superior Judge Mark Windham ruled that there was enough evidence to try Durst for the murder of Susan, and Durst would be arraigned November 8th, 2018. In January 2019, Superior Court Judge Marky Windham set Durst's trial date as September 3rd, 2019. Are you seeing a trend? Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> At the same time that the judge ruled that uh, prosecutors can use evidence involving Black's murder. So the prosecutors were gonna, are going to try to connect Ber- uh, Susan Berman's death with Kathleen Durst's disappearance, which they want to show was um, basically the motive for uh, Susan Berman's death. Yeah. Um, so in his ruling that prosecutors could use evidence from the Texas case... Uh, the judge said that the killings of Black and Berman seem to be intertwined. Obviously. Obviously. On May 17th, 2019, L.A. County Judge Mark Wyndham, same dude, granted Durst's Durst defense team a four-month postponement of his murder trial. Uh, the delay no. was granted after defense lawyers raised concerns about the volume of evidence in the case and uh, conflicts with attorney schedules. Likely story. In a yeah. surprise move on December 24th, 2019, Durst's lawyers contradicted his previous statements and filed court documents admitting that Durst wrote the cadaver note. Oh, finally admitting yeah. it, huh? Are you ready? On March... I don't know. On March 2nd, but... 2020, Durst appeared in court to begin his trial for the murder of Susan Berman which was expected to take several months. However, the proceedings have been postponed amid the COVID-19 pandemic. And that Uh, is Robert uh, Durst. This is just going to be a super unsatisfying episode because there's not a whole lot of information on mine. Okay, look. There was all this extra stuff that I wanted to add, like, he left, he was gonna, he married that woman because he was gonna kill himself and leave all of his money to her, and then there was this extra stuff about these three murders that he was connected to, and I wanted to put them in there, but I couldn't, you couldn't fit it. There's so much. So what's your story? My story is the ghost of the Hollywood sign. The co- the ghost of the what? (laughs) 
<laughs> the Hollywood sign. Oh, okay. Yes. So, my sources are wikipedia.com, liveabout.com, countryliving.com, vanityfair.com, seeksghost.blogspot.com, ranker.com, the-line-up.com, totally-la.com, and an episode of Ghost Adventures. <laughs> but there was not as much as I wanted to get out of Ghost oh. Adventures. Like, I was hoping there was going to be more. But... Couldn't even make fun of them? Okay. Yeah. No, no. All right, so my mob story, mob story. My story begins with the life and acting career career of a beautiful young starlet named Peg and Twistle. Born on February fifth, nineteen o eight, as Millicent Lillian and Twistle in Port Talbot, Glamorgan, Wales. So, as weird as uh, that probably, like, was for you to say, it was even weirder to hear, because I can barely hear you, so it sounded like, wigged, wizened gamut. <laughs> wizened gamut. <laughs> like, okay, cool, so we're doing Harry Potter now. Got it. <laughs> yes, we're doing Harry Potter now. Alright. You look like you're in a fishbowl. <laughs> yeah, there is a weird, um, curve, curvature to that. That's okay camera yeah it's fine um okay i'll repeat born february 5th 1908 as, as millicent lillian in twistle in port talbot glamorgan wales all right yeah Sound i got better? that one okay all right as legend goes her mother died when she was very young and she in turn lived with her father mm. however a last will and testament for her father was found within family records and stated that her mother and father divorced and he got sole custody of her. Ooh. The two then moved to New York City in the early spring of 1913. Unfortunately, more tragedy hit for Peg only 11 years later and her father was killed in a hit-and-run accident in December of 1922. Yikes. Peg and her two younger half-brothers moved in with their uncle, who was also living in New York. Three years later, Peg was living in Boston hmm. as a student in what is now the Huntington Theater. It was at this point that she started gaining national attention. Walter Hampton, who was an actor and theater manager, gave Peg an uncredited walk-on part in his production of Hamlet Ooh. that was on Broadway. 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 Broadway, yes. Then at 17, she played Hedvig in a production of Henrik Eisben. Eis that's not the right name. Hen Henrik Ibsen's mm -hmm. The Wild Duck. All right. All right. Yeah. Peg's performance in this role was actually an inspiration to a young Bette Davis at the time, oh. who told her mother, I want to be exactly like Peg in Twistle. Cool. The following year in 1926, Peg was recruited by the New York Theatre Guild, where she performed her first credited Broadway performance. Hmm. Um, this occurred in June of that year, and she was Martha in The Man from Toronto. She performed in 10 Broadway plays between 1926 and 1932. Her longest-running play uh, was Tommy in 1926. 
It ran for 232 performances. Wow. And it became the play that she is most remembered by. In April of 1927, Peg married an actor named Robert Keith. Robert Keith? Keith. Keith. Okay. Sorry. (laughs) Let me turn this up a little bit. Okay. There we go. (laughs) Yeah, you're good. Okay. However, two short years later and after charges of abuse, the two divorced. Oh. Apparently, he he had been married once before and fathered a son. (gasps) She knew none of this before going into the marriage. So, you know, I imagine that caused a lot of trust issues. Yeah. Yeah. Um, She also apparently had to bail him out of financial troubles and jail because he was not paying alimony and he was driving drunk. Oh, Uh, no. Yeah. Peg later claimed that he both physically and mentally abused her, leaving her with a shit ton of depression. Yeah. Um, Due to her ex and that whole fiasco, there was a lot of drama and bad press for her and the New York Theater Guild. Mm. They subsequently did not sign her on for a second season. Oh, that shit. That sucks. Yeah. So, like, risked her career because of him. She finished out that first season and continued to tour with the Theater Guild until 1932, where her last Broadway appearance was J.M. Barry's Alice Sit by the Fire. Hmm. The following May, Peg moved to Los Angeles and got a role in the play The Mad Hopes. After this, I don't know this play either. Uh, After this play, Peg landed her first film row with radio pictures titled 13 Women. She played a small role in the film as Hazel's cousin. I've never seen the movie, so I don't know who Hazel is. I don't either. However, when previews of the movie were given, poor reviews, Mm. the movie was then re-edited, and most of her role was completely left out. Oh, that sucks. Yeah, so um, Radio Pictures then dropped her contract, and... That's showbiz. Showbiz, baby, L.A. During this whole, you know, everything going on with the radio... Mm -hmm whatever uh she also found out that her husband had remarried and his acting career was thriving while hers had kind of fizzled out yeah yeah so at this point she had moved back in with her aunt and her uncle who i guess were living in la Mm -hmm. she obviously did this for financial reasons really hard to live on your own when you can't work yep yeah. Yep. Even if yep. you do work. Even if you do work nowadays, you really can't live on your own. You mm-hmm. gotta have at least one other person and one other paycheck. Mm-hmm. On the night of September 16th, 1932, after a bout of heavy drinking, Peg told her aunt and uncle that she was going to go on a walk or go out with friends. Either way, she was going out. Mm-hmm. But my sources were not clear on which one it was. Yeah. However, she never came home. Hmm. Two days later, a hiker found her coat and purse just under the H of the Hollywoodland sign. It wasn't long before he spotted her body, too. The hiker wanted to remain anonymous and just left her jacket, bag, and a note that he found, 
on the stairs of the Hollywood police station. Uh-huh, uh-huh. He then left his own letter telling the police where her body could be found, which... That's so suspicious. Don't be suspicious. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Just watch those. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that... Personally, I wouldn't be leaving a letter. I'd be running into the police station and saying, yo, I just found a body. Um, I don't know. Unless they, like, shouldn't have been there for some reason. Like, maybe they, um... Well, back then it wasn't fenced off yet. No, I mean, like, maybe they had, like, outstanding warrants. Maybe they were in the country. Um, All right. They were, like, undocumented. Something like that. Good. Good point. Valid point. Um... All right, back to... Although suspicious. I'm just going to say it's a suspicious. Very very suspicious. Um, The note that the hiker found appeared to be a suicide note that was written by Peg before she climbed the workman's ladder up the 40-plus foot high ladder. Ooh. Up to the top of the H before she jumped to her death. Mm. It read, I am afraid. I am a coward. I'm so sorry for everything. If I had done this a long time ago, it would have saved a lot of pain. Which, that just breaks my heart. That's so like, sad. Like, this, this, yeah, just it breaks my heart. You're, you're sadder than mine. Fuck. Yeah. Uh, at, also, at this point, the police had no idea who she was. And in order to identify her, they had to publish her description and what her suicide letter said in the local newspapers. And it was even announced on local radio stations. Fuck. It was at this point that her uncle realized this was her because yeah. she'd be gone. She'd been gone for two days. But, mm-hmm. you know, it's L.A., it's Hollywood, be out with your friends, whatever. Right. But he realized this was her and then came forward to claim the body. What's even worse, um, a few days later, she received a letter in the mail offering her a role in a play at the Hollywood Playhouse. Oh, I hate everything. Yeah. That's shit. Yep. Her story then became the stuff of legends, literally. When the H of the sign fell down in 1940, people blamed the spirit of Peg for it. Oh. I guess she just pushed it over. Yeah. In her infamous uh, ghost strength. Uh, Several witnesses have reported seeing a blonde woman standing atop the H in the sign. And a few have even claimed that they witnessed the girl jumping. However, when they went to find her body, nobody could ever be found. Yeah. That'd be creepy. That'd be really fucking creepy. I'd be fucked up. Yeah. In 1990, a couple was walking their dog along the Beechwood Canyon Trail. They noticed that their dog was not acting like his normal goofy self. Mm. And rather than playfully bounding up and down the trail as dogs do and through the bushes, he began to whine and did not want to move from his spot as the couple continued to walk forward. That's never good. That's no, that's that's the worst. Like, take a sign from your dog and don't move. Suddenly, a woman wearing clothes that they thought could be from the 30s appeared in front of them they weren't concerned about her sudden appearance or the clothes that she was wearing because it's hollywood it a lot of people apparently dress dress very weird it's yeah yeah um like you hear jokes all the time about people on the subway like oh yeah 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 
However, what did concern them was that she appeared to be very dazed. Mm-hmm. Fearful that she was on drugs or drunk, they turned around to leave, but just as they did, she vanished as quickly as she appeared. It should also be noted that the couple had never heard of her ghost before. Oh. Hmm. Yeah. Um, park rangers in the area also frequently see and feel the presence of something. Yeah. One in particular park ranger is John Arbergast. He claims that Peg tends to appear, appear, appear late at night and specifically when it's foggy out. Ooh. Yeah. Spooky. Spooky Hollywood sign. Spooky Hollywood sign. He also reported that um, there is the overwhelming scent of gardenias, mm-hmm. which was Peg's signature scent. Ooh. Yep. Uh, whenever her spirit is around. And the only reason he found this odd is because typically he noticed the scent in the colder months and oh. never really during the summer. Did she die during the winter? September. Oh, it's a little chilly. Well, and um, I think the reason is because in in the colder months, scents don't really blossom versus in the summertime. It's if, if it's a very light scent, like the mm-hmm. smell of a gardenia perfume, you really wouldn't be able to smell it in the summertime. Yeah. He also noted that the motion sensors that were installed around the Hollywood sign, mm. you know, in order to prevent more suicides. Right. Would frequently go off without anyone being around. Ooh. Like they would indicate that someone was standing five feet away from him. When there and when he looked there. up, no one's there. Uh, yeah. I don't yeah. like that. It's yes. In two thousand, after watching a baseball game at Dodger Stadium, four friends made a visit to the Hollywood sign. Mm. The sign obviously has since been fenced in in order to prevent trespassers, but the group of friends just ignored it and hopped over the fence. Of course. Of course. On the way back out, supposedly one of the friends had been, the line said separated by a fall. So I'm assuming he fell and the group just like walked on. So rude. Uh, But anyway. When he looked up, he saw a woman wearing a dress from the 30s Mm -hmm. with heels and a veil over her face, walking effortlessly up the hill. He made the comment that her footsteps made no sounds. And if you look at the, like, the hill that the Hollywood sign is Mm -hmm. on, it's very rocky, very um, dirt covered. So you're going to crunch a little bit. Yep. (laughs) You're going to (laughs) crunch. You're going to crunch just a teensy bit, like, you know, crisp fall Snap, crackle, pop, rice crispy. I'm doing that every day right now. (laughs) I'm getting old. (laughs) Crunchy knees. Okay. (laughs) Crunchy knees. (laughs) All right. On to the Ghost Adventures episode. Mm -hmm. The first person that the group speaks to is an officer who wanted to remain anonymous. Mm -hmm. He claimed to have seen many white mists that he believed were Peg and Twistle. They also uncover another theory. Apparently, some believe that a woman named Petronella cursed the entire area because she was not left the property by her dying uncle. Oh. She was very angry about uh, not being left the property and just cursed the area. Okay. It... it <laughs> the, the person who they were interviewing said... At this point, 
everyone associated with the property died. <laughs> like not dead. in that it's way, fine. but pre- but pretty much everyone associated with the property before then died. Yeah. Um. Okay, so during the invest actual investigation, Aaron and Billy were the two that did the investigating. Mm-hmm. Um, Aaron used the spirit box and asked if there are any spirits back here chilling. Chilling. Just chilling. <laughs> like a villain. To which the box replied, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I am chilling. Quite. And then Billy was taking some static full spectrum photos near the sign because dark you can't see a whole lot so you have to use the full spectrum camera and when he passed the first l in hollywood and took a picture like towards the h Mm. you could see kind of a black blob Uh, yeah yeah shape like like a black blob just peeking out from the edge of one of the l's like hey what's up yeah pretty much but you know no form to it just 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 a blob. Peeking out. Big yeah. old blobby. And then in the next photo, it looked like the blob turned into a sort of arm, like it was swishing around. Oh. Yeah. And when they compared the photos to the video, because mm. they're recording all of this, you could not see anything in the light that was shining between the letters. Oh. So, full spectrum picked it up. Video did not. Um... But that is, unfortunately, all that they picked up before they moved on to their next investigation. And that's my story. But actually, I I, I picked this story because I remembered when I was younger watching an episode of Paranormal Witness. I Mm -hmm. think that's the right show. And the person who was telling their story remembered the spirit to be moving kind of like a zombie and chasing them down. Oh, yeah. Oh dear. So, but I could not find that video. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be terrifying. Fuck. Yeah, so I'm thinking that maybe sort of kind of ties in with the guy who fell. <laughs> oh, maybe. Maybe, because she was moving uh, very quietly up the hill mm-hmm. and effortlessly, and yeah. But, um, that is my story. I... As, as much as I would like to think that the Hollywood sign is actually haunted, even a residual haunting, mm-hmm. personally, even though I've never been there, uh, I, I feel like... Um, there wasn't enough stuff that you could find to actually suggest anything? There, No, there, there's, not, there's not enough... There's not enough evidence. There's not enough stories. It... Well, did they close it off right after her death, um, or did they wait until a couple more people died? Um, I'm f- that I am not sure of. Mm. I'm fairly certain it was after her death. I could be wrong. But something that was also shown in Ghost Adventures, um, when the episode came out, I don't know how long ago that was, but when the episode came out, they had just released a news article where someone had dumped someone's head and hands in the park. Cool. Okay. Um. No. Yeah. Nope. <laughs> nope. Nope. So, um, on that note, 
as as much as we all hated both of those stories <laughs> and yeah. loved them. Yeah. Um. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Myths and Misfortunes or Twitter at Myths Misfortune. Or you can search for us using our full name, Myths and Misfortunes. We do pop up. You can also send us an email to misfortunes at gmail.com. Our music was composed by McKean Fulbright, and our art was created by Heather Marie Atkins. Their websites can be found in the description below. Please rate, review, subscribe, all that. All that. Thanks so much for listening, guys. Yes, bye. Bye. Bye.